Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Eleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Coast. The Brief on Marcos Melitzas and Carrie Alavelt is back after several months away in maternity leave. Carrie, how are the baby and mom? Well, um, you too. We, we are alive. <laughs> yes. Uh, so anyways, our little family's getting along and uh, I'm mildly sleep deprived, uh, which is to be expected. But um, but the little guy's doing fine. Big sister's doing fine. Um, so our Lucy, our dog is doing fine. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just a matter of like, right. It's just a matter. Everybody's fed. Everybody's, you know, getting baths and you know, all that stuff. So yes. Um, so excited to have you back. Uh, I I just want to say, I feel very lucky to have been able to take parental leave. It is so it's such a godsend, but anyway, go, go ahead, please. No, that's that's awesome. But you you know you did pick a very interesting time to go on to go and have a baby and take time off because Carrie, we've been talking about the collapse of the Republican Party and how 2022 would not be a typical midterm, and everything we talked about is coming true. Just can I just say I should go on vacation more often because <laughs> I I feel like no. I feel it was no. like a gift that I went on vacation. My whole beat exploded. And um, just before I left, I was right. Still writing pieces like I remember a, a specific headline that I wrote within a week before I left that was take heart colon, Democrats will overperform expectations in November. And I wasn't saying exactly what that would be. I thought the Senate, you know, we would keep the Senate, but I was just saying, we're going to overperform. I can't tell you by how much, but just don't listen to the pundits. And then I go away and like, everything changes. (laughs) So... Speaking of the pundits, uh, I think um, we should bring our guest on. Our guest today is Simon Rosenberg. He is the head of New Democrat Network, an old friend. He actually wrote the foreword to my first book, Crashing the Gate. Uh, we had this sort of inside-outside game going, and uh, it, was, it was in those early years of the Netroots. It was amazing. Simon, first of all, welcome. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be here, guys. Thank you so much. So Simon is, is I think, perfect, Kerry, because there was, I think, three of us four of us as individuals that were really looking early in the cycle last year saying this this is not going to be a typical midterm election. Obviously, we were talking about, about that. We were talking about Donald Trump staying on stage. So it could not be a referendum on, on Joe Biden if Donald Trump wasn't getting off the stage. Uh, and also, we were talking about the abortion decision. And we'll talk about it. Simon was right there also looking at hard numbers. And the other one was Joe Trippy, which we've had yeah, on the show Trippie. before. And Simon, I saw that you were just on Joe Trippy's <laughs> podcast. So it's just yeah. like, it's like small group of us that are suddenly feeling very vindicated. And I just want to make clear that we're not declaring victory, but we were from the beginning saying this is not a wave year. And Carrie, you were, I mean, you were there, right? I, we were there. Well, I was I was adamant for different reasons. I, I tell you, I, I, I'll tell you why I, I became an adherent and follower of what Simon Rosenberg's been doing, because I was like, 
you know, I just could see how based on me covering, based on my coverage of the LGBTQ movement from about, two, you know, the mid aughts, 2005 to 2015, when um, they secured, when we secured same-sex marriage rights through the Supreme Court decision, which of course is now like in flux, right? I mean, we still have marriage rights, but like the Supreme Court is wildly crazy now and outside of the mainstream and who knows what they could do, right? So hopefully we're going to codify that through the Senate in the next couple of weeks. I I think that's a real possibility here. Um, But you know, one of the things that I was really clear about was that there's nothing like losing rights to like ignite people, to just animate them and enrage them. And LGBTQ activists were enraged after, um, you know, Barack Obama got, uh, which we were, most of us were very happy about, got elevated to the highest office of the land, first American black president. And at the same night we had Proposition 8 pass and rights were were, um, you know, marriage rights that uh, same-sex couples enjoyed across the state were taken away. And what what every gay and transgender person knew across the country that meant they knew that that meant that if it could happen in California, it could happen anywhere. And that any we were all like on the chopping block, basically any right that we had, whether it was an employment or was it was in you know marriage rights, etc. And I was convinced that. That would just have that that the overturning of Roe would have an epic effect that people were vastly underestimating Um, and that these stories where one of the big differences between the movements of the abortion rights movement and the uh, the LGBTQ movement is that. There were tons of stories of people being kicked out of the military and people, you know, being denied being able to be at their partner's bedside that were just enraging and that were very righteous stories that the press was happy to tell and that that we were happy to share. And it was just the the abortion rights movement. Most of the stories seemed sort of like it was sort of scarce and, you know, they were they were sort of wrapped in a little bit of shame. And now we see what a difference the stories are, right? These are righteous stories. These are enraging stories. People are happy to share them because they cannot believe that a 10-year-old has to cross state lines in order to, you know, um, get an abortion after being getting pregnant through rape, a 10 year old. No one can believe that. And no one can believe that people are being forced to carry to term because, uh, you know, even though their baby might not live, you know, for, for a day or two, or that the health of the mother is actually in jeopardy and jeopardized by not being able to get a, an abortion, which is sort of basic health care. So these stories have just turned this so quickly um, and I was convinced that was going to happen. Then I discovered Simon Rosenberg. <laughs> Sorry, I know this is a long intro. But then I then I started then I started watching, and he was coming at it. You know, I was coming at it from a movement perspective. He was coming at it from you know being a, a, a campaign operative and and being a strategist and looking at the numbers. And he started putting numbers to what I was like felt was certain, but couldn't a hundred percent you know convince people of. So please, Simon, tell us what you were seeing. Yeah, sure. And listen, thank you so much. And Marcos, my brother, it's great to see you. And um, we haven't actually seen each other in person in a long time. Um, So listen, I wrote a a piece in November of last year saying that 2022 was likely not to be a typical midterm because Republicans had made what I thought was a really dangerous political decision, which is they ran towards MAGA. They ran towards a politics that had just been rejected twice by the American people 
in overwhelming numbers. And I don't know if people know this, but we won those last two elections by six and a half points. That's a big margin in our business. And more people voted against MAGA in 2018 and 2020 than any political movement in American history. So the smart thing for Republicans to have done to have secured a strong midterm would to have distanced themselves from MAGA. But we know they've been overrun by extremism and extremists, and they ran towards this, or the American Taliban, as Marcus called it a long time ago, right? Um, and got yelled, and, at, by and got yelled at by everybody. And, um, and uh, but that's what happens, Marcos, when you're ahead of the curve, right? Is that, um, so, you know, so the question always was, in my mind, was would this fear of MAGA, which drove the last two elections, once again, drive this election? And what was going to be the set of triggers that would remind the anti-MAGA majority about why they had voted against these, the Republican Party twice? And what happened was in the spring, there was a series of things that happened. Um, there was, you know, Ubaldi and there were mass shootings and there was the ending of Roe. There was the abortion restrictions. There was, you know, the SCOTUS looking like it had sort of gone crazy uh, January 6th committee revelations, which established that there was a vast conspiracy by all the leaders of the Republican Party to overturn an American election. You know, all of that all happened like together. And I think what it did is that it it shook up the electorate, reminded this anti-MAGA majority why they didn't vote for Republicans last time. And, and as you pointed out, so I wrote my, I wrote a piece before Roe ended saying there's no red wave. There was no evidence of a red wave. There was Republicans were actually, in my view, underperforming across the country uh, in polling. I was a little surprised, frankly, at what I was seeing in the in the in the limited public polling that we had at that time. And then Roe ended, and there became very very quickly the election changed. And even just four days after Roe ended, on the Tuesday afterwards, on the twenty eighth of June, there was a special election in Nebraska where we overperformed our 2020 numbers by 10 points. I mean, that's a huge overperformance. I mean, overperforming your 2020 numbers in a red wave year by anything was going to be a lot, but we overperformed yeah, by 10 I mean, points. Yeah. And I just, for, for context, people might know that there is a sort of swing district in Nebraska. It's the one that Joe Biden won in, right. in 2020. This was not the swing district. This right. was a red uh, exurban rural yes. district. Right. So and, it and was that, even more shocking. And I think that was discounted by the political class completely as being an outlier. And yet it, it turns out it was a harbinger, right? It was a signal that something had dramatically changed in the election. And we've now had five House special elections and, and our, we've overperformed our 2020 numbers in those five districts by an average set of seven points. And Marcos, to your point, this includes in states like Alaska and, you know, in Minnesota and upstate New York, not just in liberal places. And so, you know, I think that that the most important data about the election is voting. Voting always matters more than polling or anything else. And in actual, in the five House specials in the Kansas uh, vote that took place, we've dramatically outperformed expectations and outperformed even our own polling. In the New York 19 race, you know, I talked to the DCCC that afternoon and they said they thought we were going to lose by three to four points. And so they were shocked that we ended up winning that seat by almost two and a half points. And so I th and now Tom Bonnier, who's a wonderful guy who runs this group called Target Smart, has now crunched the numbers and they found that there's been a huge surge in women voting in these elections, obviously, in registering 
The registration numbers have shift, shifted much more Democratic since June 24th across the country. And in those states where you can request an early ballot, women are way outperforming their normal distribution in, in the electorate in those states. And so you see this energized, women are energized, particularly young women, and they're obviously lean much more Democratic. And I think what we're seeing is this data kind of align where you know, you're seeing the, you know, the, the public data, the polling, the, the election results, the registration numbers, all of this is telling the same story, which is that this is a very competitive, even a lean Democrat election at this point. Um, and that we are, we've come a long way from where we were. We've got a real shot at keeping both chambers if we do the work, and as Joe, Joe Trippley likes to say, and they keep doing the crazy. Yeah, you know, last week's uh, episode, we talked about New York 19. And what was amazing about that is that, first of all, it's a, it was a 50-48 Biden district. So this is a 50-50 district. If Republicans are going to take the House, they need to win districts like New York 19. It's just they, there's 222 uh, seats in the House that are more uh, Democratic than New York 19. And uh, you only need 217 to hold the majority. But what was even more amazing is that Republicans spent over a million dollars and Democrats spent, I think, 50,000 because it's a it's a seat that goes away in five months. It's it, right. it wasn't worth it for Democrats to spend money on a seat that disappears. Uh, so but Republicans wanted the statement, I guess. And despite the money, despite having their best candidate anywhere in the country in that seat uh, and despite Democrats sort of writing it off because it didn't matter, we still outperformed Joe Biden um, numbers in that district slightly. But without even trying. <laughs> yeah. And, and we outperformed our own polling. And I will tell you from talking to reporters, the Republicans are telling everybody that, that, that they were going to win that race. And so that also created an, an enormous credibility problem for the Republican political class back here about whether they were, you know, because they misled or they looked foolish to a lot of reporters who cover this stuff every day. The Democrats were downplaying that race, you know, significantly not just in public, but even to people like me. I mean, I, I was the lead strategist for the DCCC in the 2018 cycle. So I was, even though I've been doing this a long time, I've been in the game at a national level, you know, recently, right, in this new post-Trump environment. And so it, it, it was, it's a dramatic result. But I think the bottom line for your viewers is that this is a competitive election and that the work that we do between now and election day, you know, it's, we all know that elections can change. Things can turn out differently than we expected. We don't need to be lectured on that, but it's competitive now. We've been given an opportunity. And I think if I had to handicap about whether things will get a little bit more good, better for the Democrats or a little bit better for the Republicans, I still think it's much more likely that we pick up another point or two nationally, which will improve our position even more. I mean, the fact that Joe Biden's approval rating has come back by more than 10 points in recent weeks was something that nobody really anticipated, right? In terms of at least at that speed and rapidity, I think the party committees were hopeful he'd get to 45 by election day. I mean, he's already at 44. And so he could actually end up being in a stronger place than is sort of the models in what we were anticipating, you know, in the election. So I'm, I'm very optimistic. And, and certainly I think the last thing I'll say is that what is a little bit under the radar screen in the political commentary is that if you look at the June 30th filings uh, for money, our House incumbents had an eight to one cash at hand advantage oh, over their Republican, shit. and the Republican incumbents only had a two to one cash on hand advantage. And yes, there's a lot of other money in the system, but if you had to choose to have your candidates with more money or your outside groups with more money, 
you choose to have your candidates have more money. They can make late changes. They're close to the things that are on the ground. They're not doing these cookie cutter ads from some headquarters far away. They're often able to surf these changes in the final two months far better. So we'd much rather be in the financial position that we're in as opposed to them, which is why on virtually every way you look at this election, I'd rather be us than them right now. Absolutely. Can I just let's um so we could say a lot of things about <laughs> about Republican money right now, you know, like yeah. uh, Rick Scott and the and the National Republican Senatorial Committee canceling millions of dollars in ads, you know, the infighting between Mitch McConnell and Trump and Rick Scott and, uh, you know, billionaire donor Peter Thiel, all that stuff. Right. We, we could go on and on about that. But um, I, I don't want to I don't want to underestimate like I want to stay a little bit on Democrats because it's easy. It's so easy to pile on Republicans right now. Right. (laughs) Can you just can you just talk for a second about the difference in posture it makes after um, we win New York 19 unexpectedly by like six points more than what they thought, you know, what the internal house numbers were showing? I I think this is really important because, you know, this is my 17th election cycle, right, as a Democrat. I've been doing this. I know it's hard to believe I'm doing this. I know. I I joke. I used to be Yoda, and and now I'm – I used to be Luke, and now I'm Yoda, right? um, Is that uh, we – you know, this issue about whether or not you think you're going to win and your confidence – it really matters. <laughs> These are intangibles in our business that it's like in a sports team or a company, you know, the sense of like, are we together? Is the, you know, is the team together? Are we working together? Does it feel good? Right. It felt really bad two months ago. I mean, inside the democratic thing, the fighting over BBB, the Biden's low approval rating, the fear of Republicans, whatever it all was, I had almost never seen such a negative internal culture as we were feeling inside the Democratic Party in Washington, as we were just a few months ago. And so we were playing defense. We were trying not to lose the election as opposed to trying to win the election. And there's a big difference. And I think if in, in politics, if you're not on offense, you're losing. I don't think there really is. I think defense is dangerous uh, you know, in the political environment. You've got to have a strategy to win. And, and to play to win if you're, gonna, if you're going to win. Right? And I think what's changed psychologically in Washington Democratic you know, campaign circles is we now believe we can win. And, and, people, and then that creates a whole series of changes about allocation of resources and whether you distrust data or are you more confident in your candidates. Because each person in the food chain, each campaign manager, each field organizer, each candidate now feels a little bit more confidence that we can pull this thing off. That's what New York 19 did. New York 19 really injected a sense that, man, we can do this, you know, and I I, I can just feel it in my day-to-day interactions with everybody. And let me give you another example of that. Historically, the the party committees are very um, careful about not overcommitting to races that they're not really sure they can win. And in the Senate, you know, those are races like Florida, North Carolina, Ohio, which were not races that we really believed were going to be competitive a few months ago. And just in the last 10 days, the Senate has launched this thing they call the Flippable Five, which is the five Republican seats that they think they can flip. And they've made this now a national fundraising campaign. That is one of the most aggressive things that I've ever seen a party committee do in all my years 
of being in this business where they're not just worrying about defending the four, but now they're talking about the flippable five. And I just, I will tell you, that's a sign of that we're reaching and we're going for it, not being, you know, reckless and, and, and silly, right? Because I think we're, this conservatism was too much baked into the cake already. But I think that there's a confidence that we've gained. And frankly, I think the passage of the climate and health reconciliation bill was really critical to bringing the family together, um, a family that had been a little bit at odds with one another. I think this was a great way for Joe Biden to close. I think we are now more unified than we've been in years as Democrats. Um, and we have something really powerful to sell. I mean, look, we have a big argument to make about how we've made the country better. What is their argument, right? That if you elect us, we're going to make sure you don't have elections anymore. I mean, they don't, they don't really have, you know, they don't have a compelling narrative any longer. And the Washington Post had a great story yesterday about the Republicans going through another reboot on their messaging. What about because six weeks out? Yeah, right. <laughs> six weeks. I know, that's the point, Marcos. Like, that's, you know, that's the, the equivalent of the Russians getting, you know, going to retreat, right, in, yeah. in yeah. Ukraine, right? I mean, no, this no, they're is just a lot regrouping. Of, they're just yeah, regrouping, regrouping right, 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 not yeah. retreating. It's regroup. Right. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. no, it, it, very good. Well done, Terry. And <laughs> yeah. uh, it, so... I would add oh, yeah. I would add debt relief, student debt relief to yep. that list of, of really sort of bringing people together. And uh, it's um, it's amazing how calm things are on the left. Like, you know, for, you know, going from freaking out about Joe Biden to like, Carrie, you have some. Yeah. Well, let me make let me say one quick yeah. thing about student debt relief. So I've been listening, you know, podcasts are an easy way for me to take in information while I'm changing diapers and you know, like whatever. <laughs> so I've been listening just a slew of podcasts. And, you know, every Republican commentator I listen to is convinced that student debt relief was a disaster for Biden. Right. And yeah. I'm like, I'm like, they're completely underestimating the, the fact that you have to get your base to turn out, not to mention listening to um, Hacks on Tap, David Axelrod saying, I don't know about this. I was like, Axe, do you remember 2010 when you guys lost and got a shellacking because the base stayed at home, right? This is a huge base motivator. And I just want to add that to the conversation because Republican commentators, as much as they're even never Trumpers who are willing to say, our candidates suck and that's a problem, Right. But they're convinced that the student debt relief thing was bad news for Biden. And I, I'm like, listen, no one in the suburbs who is concerned about abortion is going to change their vote because stu because of student debt relief, 10,000 to 20,000 in student debt relief. That's not yeah. happening. So, yeah. Not and I think, and, and Marcos, you and I talked about this uh, uh, before we came on, or just, uh, I guess, over text, is that it's think about young people, right? And what's happened in the last few months. And young people are this overwhelmingly democratic part of our coalition. Um, and they also are the least likely to show up in the midterms and also had, we know from polling, enormous distance from Joe Biden, right? They felt very distant from him. And, and, and Biden had really lost an enormous amount of ground with young people yeah. over the last two years. Well, look what's happened now. You had the mass shootings that took place. We passed a major piece of bipartisan gun legislation, which I still think we all forget actually happened, which is almost like an unbelievable miracle that Republicans were so scared about what they were seeing that they agreed to do gun legislation, right? And then you had the ending of Roe, which disproportionately affects young people uh, in the United States. And then you had this 
massive climate, you know, the biggest climate bill in the history of the country, and you had student loan relief. And so this is a whole series of things that make it far more likely that young people are going to, to show up, be engaged and show up in this election. And I think as Marcos was saying to me over text is that that stuff is often not well captured in the election modeling, because in general, in a midterm, because they're historically, they don't vote that much, so therefore they stay out of the models. Well, we could be seeing, part of what we're seeing is that there could be more young people and more women in the electorate than the polling is showing. And if anything, we may be underestimating the final Democratic vote as opposed to under, you know, overestimating it based on just what we're seeing, which is why I encourage you to have Tom Bonnier on in one of your uh, future yeah. shows, because he's done really, really great uh, data crunching on this, too. So, yeah, you, you mentioned earlier that Democrats were, were, you know, they didn't know if they could trust the data. And after 2016 and 2020, where Republicans outperformed the numbers, it's, it's almost a little bit understandable. Uh, my theory has been that there's this nihilistic Trump vote that they're not going to talk to pollsters, right? They, they, they exist to tear down the system and they're not talking to anybody unless it's giving them the middle finger. And so, yeah, there's this hidden vote. In 2018, they didn't turn out. So the polling was actually okay. Now, last year, they turned out. So, you know, this hope that they would not turn out if Donald Trump wasn't on the ballot, sort of, you know, that dream died. And Republicans, again, outperformed the polling in, in New Jersey and, uh, and, and uh, Virginia. So I, I get why people would be a little bit of, you know, worried, you know, can we trust these numbers? But one is, is we don't need to trust the numbers. We've been looking at elections. Like you said, Simon, earlier, we've been outperforming six, seven points in actual elections. That's not polling. And a lot of the commentary that still wants to be like, well, the polling could be wrong. It's like, yeah, of course the polling could be wrong. But think we have 11 elections this year. We've seen the progression from, from uh, Republicans outperforming uh, Donald Trump by nine points at the beginning of the year to now Democrats outperforming Joe Biden by about six, seven points on, yeah. on average because of all the things you mentioned, Simon, the, the Uvalde shooting and the legislation and student debt relief and the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. So things have dramatically changed. And so the question is, you know, we have a polling arm civics, so we know this challenge and I know you do a lot of polling is how do and uh, over half of the registered voters, new, newly registered voters, according to Tom Bonnier, are under the age of 25. How do you poll those people? I, it, yeah. It's not possible, right? So they have right. a hidden vote that's impossible to poll. I think we either offset it or overperform it. But at the very least, we just don't know anymore. And, right? and yeah. a lot of these, can I just say one thing? Yeah. A lot of these um, these polls now that you're seeing coming out are going to switch or have already switched from, from uh, registered voters to likely voters. And the likely voter screens are definitely not going to be, you know, <laughs> including a bunch of these new um, Who never voted. New registrants. Yeah, this is never a midterm voted. election. So, yeah. so please yeah. talk about that. Yeah, no, it, and I, and I, you know, we, this stuff, we love this stuff. I hope you're, this is interesting to your, you know, your audience, but, um, but I will, let me just say one thing in 2016, the polling wasn't wrong. The election changed at the end. Right. And this is really important. I mean, if Comey did not intervene in the election, we would have won that election comfortably by five or six points. But there was a dramatic event that changed the election in the way there was a dramatic event in this election, right, that changed the election. And so we have to be open to the idea that something could 
change the current trajectory of the election. And my view is that that event is far more likely to be harmful to Republicans than to Democrats. But we'll we'll see. I mean, obviously, Trump some huge bomb could go off in the Trump world, right? Uh, something that he's done, the illegality and the craziness of Trump world could do something that is uh, really off-putting and a reminder of how dangerous the Republicans have become. But I will say, Marcos, what you're describing is really important, is that you know it, there's two parts of the electorate that are most difficult to poll, and that's young people, and it's also Spanish-speaking Hispanics, Spanish-dominant Hispanics. And I think that you know, what you're seeing, I, I'm a little bit of a skeptic of this idea that there's been some kind of huge shift with Hispanic voters towards the Republican Party. And one of the reasons I think a lot of this data is wrong is that the polling, you know, you're talking about 125 person subsamples of larger polls that almost never use Spanish. And Spanish, in this right now, we know that Spanish speakers are much more democratic than Hispanics overall. And you've got the combination of Hispanics also being very young, Marcos, right? Going back to this thing that you raised, right? Yeah. So there, there is, um, you know, there are there is two parts of our of our coalition are notoriously difficult to poll, um, and as is there may be a part of their coalition too. And so I, you know, listen, I I think that what all polling does is that it's a guide. It doesn't tell you what's going to happen. It gives you an insight into what is happening. And all the data is sort of pointing in the same direction, right? Which is that we have the wind at our back. Things are moving in our direction. Biden's coming back up. We have a stronger closing argument than they do. Uh, and then I, I do want to say one final thing, which I think is, is not well understood yet, that I think will become better understood. I think if you look at the national polling, you see a lot more Republicans closer to 40 in the low to mid 40s than up closer to 50. DeSantis is the only national Republican in a competitive race that's hit 50 in the last few months since Roe ended. Kemp's under 50 in, in Georgia, Rubio's in the mid 40s and most of the polls in Florida. And you see, even Abbott is under 50 in Texas in all the polls. So when you really look at the data, what you're seeing is I think the Republicans are struggling to bring their coalition together. They're, they only got 46% of the vote in the last three elections. And for them to do well, they need to not just hold what they had, but they need to gain voters or have a bunch of our folks stay home. The likelihood of our folks staying home is now significantly diminished, right? Yeah, and the question terrible. is, I also think they're not going to get many people to go switch. And so the question now is, is whether or not a MAGA-led Republican Party is struggling to even put that coalition of 46 together. And, and I think there's a lot of evidence in you know, with Vance and with Oz and with, you know, Vance in Ohio, Oz yeah, in Pennsylvania. Right. Yeah. 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 That they are struggling to consistently get up into the, even the high, even to 45, 46, 47. Now, let me, let me just drill down on that for one second. Part of the reason I think this is happening is because there's now an, a very significant national effort of Republicans to tell Republicans not to vote Republican. This is a big deal. I mean, Bill Crystal is spending $10 million in an organization of Republicans on camera talking to Republicans why they shouldn't vote Republican, right? You've seen now in Texas, in, in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, in Colorado, in Maryland, in, uh, in New Hampshire, where I, leading Republicans have either endorsed Democratic candidates or come out and said, I can't support the MAGA candidate. If all of that just means 1% or 2% in this election, it could make the difference between us, you know, winning both chambers and not. And I think that 
the political com- commentary at is oh, and Liz Cheney. I mean, if Liz Cheney really campaigns with Democrats, you know, as she said she's going to do. I mean, we're talking about shaving off just a couple points here. And I think that is also being overly discounted right now. What it means that, for example, in Texas, in the lieutenant governor's race, you've now had two very prominent Republicans endorse a Democrat, creating a permission structure for other Republicans who are uncomfortable with MAGA to go find them. And that's what happens in these kinds of movements. The more people that jump in, right, the more people jump in. It's a, it's a permission structure. That permission structure is being created right now by national Republicans. I went on Michael Steele's broadcast. He's out there every day. Joe Scarborough, Michael Steele, Liz Cheney. We've never seen the kind of defections that we're now seeing. You know, yes, there were defections from Trump, but this is defections from Republicans, right? Which which is a brand issue, right? And so I am optimistic that that's going to be, that's a more powerful dynamic than I think is being understood in the current political commentary and even because certainly the data suggests they're struggling to pull their coalition together right now. I've seen um, psychiatric stu- psychological studies that changing one's political affiliation is akin to actually losing a limb. It is it is physically painful to change wow. political affiliation. And if you doubt that, just imagine yourself because everybody listening to this, almost everybody is a you know Democrat or a liberal progressive. Imagine having to vote for Donald Trump. Imagine the agony it would take for you to be able to pull that lever for Donald Trump. And so the permission structure Simon is talking about is actually critical because it eases that transition. And again, you may not get a lot of people, but one to two percent. And those college educated suburban white women that we've been talking about the last few cycles as the only swing vote, they were Republican. And it's taking years to get them to become more uh, more consistently democratic. And even last year in New Jersey and, and Virginia, they voted yep. Republican. So we're, it takes at the process. So, but one to 2% when this election is this tight could be the game. Yeah, and I remember Joe Trippi saying that when he was working on the uh, 20, uh, 2018 campaign for, um, I'm losing the guy's name for Senate in Alabama. What? Um, you know, you know who that who he is a yeah. Democrat who won. Um, oh, what's uh, his name? Marcos. Um, we'll think of Doug it. Jones. Doug, Doug Jones. Doug Jones. Doug Jones. Right? Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You are. He, you are. I just remember him saying during focus groups that he that that the women that they were hoping would vote for him just like couldn't even even get the word Democrat out of their mouth. It was like a curse word. They were Republican women who had voted Republican all their lives. And they were like, just couldn't even say the D word. It was that bad. They were like, I'm going to vote probably for, you know, they just couldn't like, it was so bad. But let me, let me piggyback off of something that uh, Simon said, which is, and I think that people have started to catch on that the candidate quality of Republicans is really bad, that J.D. Vance in Ohio is an anchor so far and that that, you know, dragging him down and that Oz, uh, you know, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania is an anchor dragging him down. But but what people forget is that it's not, you know, Simon was talking about this um, flipping five. Uh, what was the, what's the new Senate campaign you were talking flippable about? Five, flippable five. Flippable five the yeah. flippable five, right? Those are incumbents, right? That, that the Democrats are going after. It's not just the new recruits. It's the actual Republicans. It's Rubio, who I think, if I remember correctly, has never actually reached 50 in any of his uh, Senate elections, because there's always been like a third party who's who's drawn some, um, 
you know, some votes. And it's, uh, you know, it's Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, who the last time I checked, and it's been a few weeks, but his, you know, his number, his approvals were like in the 30s or something, just insane. Yeah, so- he's a good candidate. By right. definition, he's a, he's won twice yeah. in Wisconsin. That's a good candidate. Right. Yeah. So, right, exactly. So it, so I think what it's not just the candidate recruitment, it's that the whole party has been pulled full so far to the right and so far out of the mainstream that even their incumbents are really in trouble now. And we've got this really aggressive that I hadn't heard of until you mentioned it, the flippable five, because I've been a little out of the loop. But um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. So, yeah. So I, I think that even though the, the journalists are starting to catch on, you know, to, to the candidates being, you know, crap, um, that the, the GOP candidates in particular, but the, but also the whole party's just moved so far that their incumbents are in trouble too. Yeah. And let me, let me echo something that Joe Trippi probably talked about when he was on, which is this notion of building this kind of grand pro-democracy coalition where we invite four to 5%, 6% of the electorate to sort of temporarily join with us to you know defeat MAGA and to, and to defeat MAGA in such a way that there becomes an incentive for the Republicans to move on to a different kind of politics. That's what we want here, right? We don't we want to beat Republicans because we want to beat Republicans. We want to beat them badly in this election and in the next one so that they move away from a politics that's become dangerous to the country and is a betrayal of everything that we've always believed in as Americans. And I think it's why we have to start getting creative in our thinking. I mean, if this was a parliamentary system, we would be able to absorb the Liz Cheney party. They would be a separate party. They'd be called whatever party, right? The center-right party. And they would join us. And Liz Cheney would go into our cabinet and Bill Kristol would go work in the White House. And we'd have ways of absorbing them in a formal way, right? And we don't have that in our system. And, And it's why I think what happens, I think I talk about the Never Trumpers as being uh, refugees from a country where they're now beginning to realize they're never going to go home and that they have to start, you know, some have gone all the way over to where Matthew Dowd is, where he's become a Democrat. Others are in this in-between place. We've got to make, we've got to invite these folks over to our dinner table. We have to make them feel comfortable. I, I, one of the reasons I went and did Michael Steele's uh, podcast and Matt Lewis's podcast is that I want these people who have been courageous and taking on their party and unwilling to go along with this dangerous politics to have Democrats thanking them for what they're doing and their leadership. Um, and I think that's going to be something we have to talk about, Marcos and, and Carrie, about you know, how are we really going to do this? Because we need to start thinking about how we get to 58, not just 51, right? Because that's when we start winning back the legislatures in Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and taking the ability for them to play this crazy state legislative thing they want to do. And we sort of take that off the table temporarily while the party extracts itself away from MAGA. I may be being wildly optimistic. However, this is, you know, what we have to start thinking differently about, uh, about, you know, our politics, which is creating this sort of grand coalition with the parts of the Republic or what used to be the Republican party um, and bring them over in this sort of, you know, temporary grand coalition to defeat MAGA. I do think this is possible. I mean, Morning Joe put out a statistic today um, from a poll, I'm forgetting what it was. And, and the question was, do you believe the Republicans are trying to save America or they're trying or they're working towards destroying our democracy? 58% of voters said destroy our democracy. That's wow. our potential ceiling. 
right, of where we can go if we figure out a way of bringing in these never Trumpers into this grand coalition. It's happening organically, but I think something more formal and structural needs to happen in the coming months and years in order to make sure we're successful in this effort. It would be quaint to go back to arguing over tax cuts for billionaires as the big yes. issue. <laughs> Can you imagine? So yeah. we're, we're running out of time. So I, I really want to look, you know, how do we close this election? So really, Republicans are in a tough place. All the news is bad for them. Gas prices are coming down. Inflation is coming down. Job growth is still very, very strong. Uh, the war in Ukraine is going well. There's, there's, a, there's, a non, there's a real possibility, guys, that the big pre-election news is Russia surrenders in Ukraine. I mean, we are getting to a place where that is a real possibility. So really, what do, and you know, we talked about how Republicans are trying to somehow rebrand or re regroup in these last few weeks. What do Democrats need to do, Simon, to close strong and to maximize yeah. this opportunity we have? So it's a great question. And I think it's really important to recognize that the Republicans made two big strategic errors this cycle, right? One was the one we discussed by running towards MAGA. The other one was them not coming up with any kind of real agenda, any kind of olive branch to swing suburban voters to say, we're not really those kinds of Republicans. You know, water's warm, come with us. <clears throat> there was just I mean, unbelievable just arrogance about that, right? Mitch, yeah. Mitch McConnell just saying, uh, you know, elect us and we'll get back to yeah. you. You know, I no. mean, like literally being asked, what are you going to do? And he'll yeah. say, well, once we get power, we'll tell you. I mean, no, they made this was a this was a huge error. Right. I mean, and it could be that when you have a party that's overrun by extremists and extremism, they actually aren't good at making strategic and tactical decisions on how to run an election. Right. And so they um, and I know that McCarthy's trying now to put out this milk toast thing later this week. I don't think I think it's too late and it's too silly, frankly, for it to have much of an impact. So I think that what's really important is that they had no plan B. They believe that Biden's low approval rating and high inflation meant that they were going to that they were going to win. And what they miscalculated was this idea of all these people who had voted against them twice were just going to run into their arms, forgetting about how crazy they had been. And and so that's not happening. Right. We know that's not happening. And so, Marcos, your question is the critical one now. They've, their agenda, their strategies evaporated. They're now the daily news cycle on the Republican side is unrelentingly negative, full of crazy Trump stuff that crazy and, and traitorous Trump stuff that's going on. And they've sort of lost control of that, which is going to be, I mean, the fact that we've had so much infighting and Trump has called on McConnell to resign. I mean, we've never seen this kind of stuff this close to an election, this kind of ugliness of their whole offering. So their thing, I think, stays ugly and irredeemable to some degree. For us to get to win the midterms, though, we need to close really strong and to remind people that we've made progress during Joe Biden's presidency. When you're the incumbent party, you're graded on a simple measure, which is, is my life better? And I think that, that we, however we make that argument, and there are many ways to make that argument. I mean, I have my own opinions, but I think it's less important about how we make it as opposed to whether we make it. We simply must close with this idea that two years of Democrats being in charge has made our lives and our country better. And, and because that is not baked into the cake right now. And what's important is that, you know, if you think about Republican advertising right now, what information are they giving to voters they don't already have? Voters know that Demo that inflation was too high. They know the border's a mess. These are all things that are baked into the cake. I don't know that they have an ability to give voters information through advertising that they don't have, where we do. 
voters don't know that the economy is better. They don't really know yet that the country's better. So I think our advertising can move the needle more, right? We can do more with our money than they can do because there's very critical information that voters don't have that will be potentially determinative in how this election comes out. And I think that even today there was a clip where Joe Biden, a reporter who'd been covering Biden, said it's been interesting to watch the evolution of Biden's language. He's no longer talking about the pain of inflation. He's talking about the progress we've made. Things are better, right? That's a huge shift in tone. And again, it gets to this, carry this thing we were talking about earlier is confidence, right? I don't think Democrats thought they had done a good job. Now I think there's a strong argument that we've done it. We have done not just a good job, but a really good job. These have been two historic years because not only is the country better post-COVID, we're you know beating Russia and all these things, but the investments that we've made are going to create jobs and opportunity for workers for decades beyond. We have so much to run on. And I just want to perhaps close to your audience to think, listen, all the reasons you're going to make your phone calls and do your texting and give your money and all the things we're going to do to try to move the needle. Look at what we just did with two years of power. We've only had control of Washington for six years out of the last 42 years. Imagine if we get two more years, all the good we can do. And I hope that that's as much of a motivator for all of us as the fear of the other side. Because I just think we demonstrated that even with our crazy, dysfunctional, center-left Democratic Party, right, we can come together and get big shit done. Um, and and put points on the board for the American people. We know that now. Give us two more years. Think about what we can do together. Absolutely. Carrie, that sounds like a good uh, <laughs> closing it's, it's, soliloquy, yeah. huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, how, how do we improve on that? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can't. Simon Rosenberg, he's the, uh, your executive director? Is that the title? Just whatever. El Jefe. El Jefe. <laughs> New Democrat Network, old-time friend. Thank you yeah. so much. Oh, what's your, um, do you have anything to pitch? Yeah, and just my Twitter handle is SimonWDC. Please follow. It's where I do too much writing. I spend too much time on Twitter, I will admit. And my website is ndn.org. And you can watch a video of my presentation about the election there. And also, I do a, a daily update on the election that's live and updated first thing every morning, looking at new polling information. So lots of resources there on the NDN site if you want to check it out. I Simon definitely, did. I can, I definitely recommend following Simon on Twitter, um, and and you know get, get regularly checking it for his updates because it and it's powerful. It's it's grounded in in facts and data, um, and it makes you feel good. So you know, get <laughs> a cup of coffee in the morning. You know, whatever whatever's your your pleasure, and then like dig into some of the new numbers that he's talking about there, and and it, but not cope inspire. good. It's actually because the news is good. It's no, really- it's not right. It, it, it is good, and listen, I just will close. My final point is, we just have to learn and spend more time being proud of our party and proud of our president. And and I think that we're really rough on one another in our little family. And I think that compared to the other side, holy okay. moly, have we been a force for good now for decades, even generations. And we've got to live more in that, uh, in those achievements than we do in the disappointments. And, and, I, and I think this is, you know, this is part of something we have to learn and get better at because, you know, we have to, I do believe that in politics, you have to say, look, we've come a long way. We've got a long way to go, but you got to start with, we've come a long way, right? <laughs> you know, to show that you actually, when you're given power, that you can make things better. 
And it, by spending so much time talking about all the things we don't do, as opposed to all the things we do do, I think we're selling ourselves short every day. We've been, this has been an amazing party. I'm proud to have been part of it for my whole life. And you know, this battle ahead of us is one of the most important since we've all been in the game. So please do everything you can to make sure that we have a good, you know, that we win the midterms. That has to be the aspiration now is we have to win the midterms. Right. Simon Rosenberg, El Jefe of New Democrat Network, NDN. <laughs> Thank you so very much for joining us. That was amazing. Thanks. Thank you. Carrie, it, it's, um, it's good talking to somebody who actually saw this coming and was able to read the data and understood the situation and wasn't caught up in this. History says that the party in power loses seats in the midterm. And it's true. History can be indicative of conditions, but it's not determinative. And if you ignore the broader dynamics of what was happening in the country, it was easy to see that this was never going to be a typical midterm election. Just like we could see in 2001 after 9-11 that 2002 would not be a typical midterm election. I mean, it should be obvious, but it wasn't. One of the things that I heard Simon talk about on the on the uh, Michael Steele podcast, too, and I think this is true, is that Twitter has sort of increased the herd mentality of journalists and particularly Washington journalists. Right. Um, because there, you get such strong reactions so quickly that if you go outside the mainstream, if you go against what everybody else is saying, then, you know, then there's a there's just a huge price to pay for that. And I can just tell it's you risk. Yeah, I get risk. Right. I can just tell you after, you know, reporting in Washington for um, a little under a handful of years, how strong that even before Twitter had really gained, because this was in like 2009, 2010, 2011, 12, that before Twitter had really, really gained the traction that it has now. And it was there, but it just wasn't quite as strong that already the poll, the, the pull, sorry, not poll, the, the pull um, to to kind of go along yeah. with the conventional wisdom, the group think in Washington was so real. And I, I fortunately was able to kind of stay out of that for to some extent because. I was reporting on a constituency that just had different interests than everybody else. And I, I didn't think of myself as I'm here to be objective about whether or not, yeah, you know, yeah. LGBTQ people deserve their rights. No, I wasn't objective about that. And what I was trying to figure out was what the hell the Obama administration was doing and be clear with my constituency, the one that the people that were reading me that I was reporting for, whether or not that was really happening. And, you know, the promises that he had made, he was, he was trying to keep, et cetera. So it kept me, it insulated me to some extent, but man, you, if you say, if you have an idea that is outside of what everybody else is saying and, you know, in, in LA, everybody needs, wants to be pretty. Everybody's pretty and, and wants to be pretty, right? Everybody wants to be smart in DC. It's a, mm. it's a nerdy culture. Everybody wants to be smart. Everybody wants to be seen as smart. No one wants to be the person who is, you know, saying something different and then turns out to be wrong. Right. So, um, yeah, it's safe you know, to be wrong if everybody else is wrong. It's, it's right. like the, the water right. buffalo herd. You're safe in that in that. It's map. much safer. It's As much opposed safer. To the, the one that walks off by itself and gets mauled by the lions, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's it's just a reinforcing thing in there. And I always often say that DC is the place where good ideas go to die, you know? So like, it, I, I just think that 
the pundits got ahead of themselves and they were so convinced that this was the narrative based on historical trends. And as you and I have been saying for, I mean, all you had to do was look at the Democrats being able to win um, those two seats in Georgia, just to know that these were two Senate seats in Georgia um, in the special elections or the the runoffs, sorry, the runoffs in Georgia just after um, the, the 2020 elections. That, that these are ahistorical times, that there's always the possibility that things don't go at all. I mean, that was like, then we had an insurrection. I mean, you know, then yeah, abortion, yeah. which has been for 50 years. I mean, we can go, we've gone through this stuff before, but there was always the possibility that this was just going to be very different. And the pundits just refused to go there. And the more one pundit said it, the more the other pundits said and, it. And, and Carrie- the more it- the Just, fact that yeah. it was a bunch of men dominated by men yes. who clearly, you know, like, oh, the electorate doesn't care. This will pass. That's what so many said. White men. Yeah. White men. Dobbs will pass by election time. And yeah, no. And I think you're right. If, if you're a woman um, in that world, do you really want to you're already a target? Yeah. Do you really want to stand out on that limb? And so it's easier for us because we're we're partisans and we can be objective about the situation. And, we, you know, we'll talk about when things are going poorly as just as much as we'll talk about when things are going well. But we could examine the dynamics. We could examine the reasons midterms suck for incumbent parties. And that's because they're referendums on the incumbent. And we can we can then analyze the broader picture. And again, we knew abortion was going to happen. Uh, we knew Trump wasn't going to step off the stage. And so it was obvious that that this wouldn't be. Now we never said Democrats are going to win, right? But we right, said right. this is not a red wave guaranteed loss. Like things are going to happen, and it's going to be weird, right? And we should be ready for that. And so, right. and again, Simon was one of the few, few people that saw that. Joe Trippi as well, who ran Howard Dean's campaign. He's been on the show. He was one of the few people who saw these um, dynamics, and it, it it's telling that all you know those two guys. Are partisans, right? They're not. They're not trying to safely ensconce themselves in like DC intelligentsia. Like they, they were looking at data. They were looking at numbers. They were looking at the big picture, just like we were. And mm-hmm. we all came to that same conclusion. And now I'm glad everybody's with us. I'm glad that narrative is mostly yeah, now dead. Because even though we were out there, you know, even people in our own party were sort of like, yeah, uh, you know, that's happy talk. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. So- <laughs> So, so we, we, you know, we were out there on a limb and they were out there on a limb. Um, and Simon was out there on a limb, right, right there in DC. You know, I don't know, actually know where he's based, but like, in DC. Yeah. You know, yeah. No, he, yeah, he's across DC, the white yeah. house in DC. So yeah. 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 So, so thanks everybody. That is our show, Carrie. It's such a pleasure to have you back. It's so exciting. Yay! Looking forward to, to closing out this election season. We're going to have so much to talk about in these coming weeks. Thanks to Walter for producing the show. Thanks to Kara and uh, Dorothy and Paul for all the work they do behind the scenes. And thank you, the reader and the viewer and the listener for joining us every week to talk about what's important in our country and this sort of battle for our democracy. Cause again, I keep saying this every week. This is not about taxes for billionaires. I wish, I wish that's what we were arguing about. This is literally about our democracy and it's not just the house and the Senate, but it's state legislatures, it's governorships, uh, secretary of states, attorney generals up and down that ballot. We all have to go out we have to work hard and we have to take advantage of this opportunity that the Republicans and, and the Republican Supreme court has given us to dramatically reshape what our country can look like. So it's either D.C. statehood, Puerto Rico statehood, voter rights, uh, abandoned to uh, partisan gerrymandering, 
or it's the destruction of our democracy if Republicans take over. Right. So, so really fi- find a way to get involved. I mean, you know, even if it's just one race, like even if it's city council in your city, like find a way to get involved because every person that you help turn out or every person that you help convince is is one more person for the the whole the state, you know, one yeah. more person for, you know, so just like it builds on itself. So you don't have to go crazy. But if you have time, go crazy. Yeah. <laughs> do My the people. text, do the phone calls yeah five people turn them five out people yep. find five people get them to turn out you would do more for our democracy than almost you know vast majority of people so thank you so much for joining us talk to you next week thank you for listening if you're enjoying the show give us a rating wherever you get your podcast you can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on twitter at dailycoast see you next week